Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Welcome, Monsieur Verne. I am proud to receive such an esteemed author within the portals of the old lady of Threadneedle Street. Most kind. And how disarmingly British to call your noble Bank of England an old lady. The charter was granted in 1695. She's only 23 years short of her double centenary. Now to start our little tour. Please notice that we do not employ guards, armed or otherwise, in the main drawing office. That official at the open counter over there, he seems most relaxed, even while surrounded by such mountains of money. (laughs) You know, not long ago, a gentleman's curiosity was caught by a gold ingot on that very desk. He was allowed to pick the ingot up and examine it closely. This was surely a great risk. Well, you might think so, as he then passed it on to the next customer, who passed it on yet again. Witnesses declare the gold progressed so far as a shadowy nook near the main entrance before making its way back to our cashier's counter, a round trip of some 30 minutes. A remarkable tale, Mr. Ralph. But true, Monsieur Verne, and symbolic of the sheer and unblemished honesty to be found within the City of London. Excuse me, sir, the most terrible news. I've just completed the trading account for today. There's a deficit of £55,000. Such a sum in notes was set aside on my counter earlier today. A shameless villain must have helped himself to it. Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. Dramatized by Terry James in four episodes. Episode 1 An Overhurried Departure. I have to warn you, Mr. Phileas Fogg is the most exacting employer on the entire globe. So you're happy to be dismissed? Yes and no. Life at Seven Savile Row had certain advantages, but my nerves will suffer less. What happened? This morning, for the first and only time, my master found his shaving water to be too cold. Ah, but it's a terrible thing to try and shave with cold water. It was 84 degrees Fahrenheit instead of the 86 degrees he expected. Uh, Un gentilhomme qui est perfectionniste. If you say so. At last... My final duty is to take you to him. Uh, Come this way. The new man, servant, sir. Thank you, Forster, and goodbye. What was that? Ill-mannered as well as incompetent. Now then, young man, I believe you are a Frenchman by the name of John. Jean, if you please, monsieur, and I am 30 years old, if you think that is young. I speak as one ten years your senior. Sir, you are called Jean. Jean Passepartout, a fitting surname for one of wide experience. I am an honest man, but to tell the truth, I've had many jobs. Oh. I have been a street singer, a circus rider, an acrobat and a tightrope walker. Then, after a spell teaching gymnastics, I became a firefighter in Paris. An active life. 
Yes, sir. But five years ago, I left France to seek peace and quiet working as a valet in England. So far, I have not been completely successful, which is why I was delighted to enter the agency this morning and discover a vacancy in the employ of Monsieur Phileas Fogg, the most exact and settled gentleman in the United Kingdom. You come highly recommended. But do you know my conditions? I know the required temperature of your shaving water. Then let me tell you that you'll be the only servant. The entire maintenance of my household will be your responsibility. I live here alone. Without even a chef? I take meals at the Reform Club, for which place I depart at exactly 11.30 each morning. At exactly midnight, I return. Very good, monsieur. What time do you make it now? Uh... Twenty-five minutes after eleven. Your watch is slow. But, sir, how can that be? By four minutes. Never mind, as long as you note the discrepancy. From this moment, twenty-nine minutes after eleven, on the morning of Wednesday, October the 2nd, you are in my service. My hat. Uh, monsieur? Mm. Until midnight. Bien, monsieur. seen warmer souls on show at Madame Tussaud. But at least I have found a heaven of tranquility. Good day to you, Mr. Fogg. Good day. What a fine morning. Does the glorious gold of the leaves not take your breath away? Their colour is hardly surprising on the 276th day of the year. Excuse me. <laughs> It's only being civil. Then you are wasting your time, sir. There goes a gentleman who breakfasts alone, brooks no interruption while he reads the Times and the Standard through the afternoon, dines alone, reads the Chronicle for a short while, and then plays at whist with a very select group of the members. That's <laughs> the doorman, Clancy. What brings you to such a detailed knowledge? Well, the other club servants have remarked on it, for the very reason that Mr Fogg's day never varies. Though, apart from what we observe here at the Reform, nothing else is known of the gentleman, not a whisper. I'm glad not to be a director of the Bank of England. <laughs> Tell us, Ralph, old chap, what's the latest on this robbery of yours? Well, we expect an arrest in the very near future. Shan't have to resign and join you in the brewing profession, Flanagan. Does this mean you have a description? Enough of one, Stuart, and the finest detectives have been dispatched to Liverpool, Glasgow, Love, Suez, New York. Well, what's the reward? £2,000 and 5% of the sum recovered. A generous sum. And worth it for the skilful officers we've employed. You'll have to be a genius to slip through the net. Though he is not a common thief. Well, what is he, then? An industrialist? <laughs> It says in the Chronicle that he is a gentleman. Fog, stop hiding behind your paper. It's time for our game of whist. It is 20 seconds after time. Who is to partner whom? I'll play with Stuart. Yeah. See if you can help Ralph to victory and cheer him up. My deal. Ah, perhaps my luck is already changing for the better. In my opinion, the chances are in favour of the thief, or whatever you would have us call him. Where can he escape to? No harbour is safe? Uh, no, tell me, anybody, where can the man hide? Well, the world is vast enough. Not as vast as it used to be. Diamonds are trumps. The Journal of Jean Passepartout. 
For the moment, my duties are complete, giving me time to write this before my master returns home. The house is wondrously quiet. In my room, I've found a card detailing all my duties. My master gets up at exactly eight in the morning. Tea and toast must be served to him at 23 minutes past eight. The shaving water is due at 37 minutes past nine. Mr. Fogg is clearly a very organized character. It seems to me that he wishes to live the life of a machine. Very well. I do not mind serving a machine. Uh, either our brains are sluggish or Fogg and Ralph played their hands with fiendish skill. Part of my mind was on what Fogg said earlier. Which particular remark? That the world is not so vast as it used to be. How can it have grown smaller? Have any bits dropped off? You mean, Stuart, that man can travel round the globe ten times as quickly as he could a century ago, which is why the chap who robbed the bank will find our detectives hot on his trail. Well, doesn't it mean he can get away more quickly? I still don't follow. It doesn't mean the world is smaller just because a fellow can travel around it in three months. In 80 days. Ah. If you would care to set aside the cards for a moment, Stuart, the Chronicle has made an estimate only today. A new section of railway has been opened in India between Rathal and Allahabad. Well, let's all hear it. From London to Suez, via Brindisi by rail and steamboats, seven days. From Suez to Bombay by steamer, 13 days. From Bombay to Calcutta by rail, three days. From Calcutta to Hong Kong by steamer, 13 days. From Hong Kong to Yokohama by steamer, six days. From Yokohama to San Francisco by steamer again, 22 days. From San Francisco to New York by rail, seven days. And from New York to London by steamer and rail, nine days. Total, 80 days. Extraordinary. Pleasantly round number also. The calculation doesn't take into account storms, adverse winds, shipwrecks, railway accidents or whatever. One could manage it all the same. Suppose the Hindus started to have one of their uprisings. They could easily sabotage this new railway line. And in the United States, Red Indians might attack the train with a scalping party. Such things have happened. One could manage it all the same. But shall we return to our game? Your deal, Stuart. Ah, to hell with whist. I'd dearly like to see you attempt this journey in 80 days, Fogg. We could all go. I would, but with this infernal robbery. If only my brewing interests weren't so demanding. I do have a great deal of work at the minute. An engineer cannot simply disappear, for goodness knows how many days. 80 days? It has to be more than 80. I would wager 4,000 pounds the journey is impossible in such a period. I still say it's perfectly possible. Prove it, then. As far as any of us know, you are a gentleman of limitless leisure. My style of life is my own affair, but your challenge appeals to me. Oh, when would you start? Straight away. Well, without at least a day's preparation. Why waste time? <laughs> Why, indeed. Ah, look, the whole thing's absurd. Let's get on with the game. As Fogg says, it's my deal. <sighs> a misdeal, I'm afraid. What? You omitted the couch. Concentrate, partner. Oh, how can I? Damn it all, I can tell from Fogg's manner. He defies me to go ahead with this stupid wager. Well, I shall. 4,000 says so. I have 20,000 in Bering's bank. Are there any other takers? How about you, Ralph? Mm, count me in for 4,000. Me too. 
And I think our two friends over there have overheard enough to risk an equivalent sum. Well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we there, Fog, your 20,000 is matched. A sum you could lose through a single unforeseen accident en route. The unforeseen doesn't exist. From a philosophical mm. point of view, perhaps. To be more practical, those 80 days quoted in the newspaper are only an estimated minimum. The minimum will suffice. Mm. Even though you must jump with mathematical precision from train to steamer, from steamer to train, and so forth? I shall jump mathematically. Madness. You are joking, aren't you? Sirs, an Englishman does not joke about a bet. I wager £20,000 against an equivalent sum from the five of you that I shall make a tour of the world in 80 days or less, or in 1920 hours, or in 115,200 minutes. Do you accept? We accept. We accept. accept. Good. I shall take the train which leaves for Dover at a quarter to nine. You still intend an immediate departure? Yes, I do. Today being Wednesday, the 2nd of October, I shall return to this room in the Reform Club on Saturday, the 21st of December at a quarter to nine p.m. In the event of my non-appearance, this cheque will be ready for presentation at Bearings. Once a memorandum of the wager has been drawn up, perhaps we can continue with our game of whist. Passepartout! Monsieur, I have to apologise. Yes, you do. Why did I have to ring and call? It is not midnight, sir. Even if my watch is a few minutes slow... I dare say, but we're leaving for Dover and Calais in ten minutes. Ten minutes? The same number of minutes in whatever language you like. We're going round the world. In ten minutes? In eighty days, so we haven't a moment to lose. Well, where are the trunks, monsieur? We shall take only a carpet bag, two shirts and three pairs of stockings for me. The same for you. We can buy any other clothes on the way. Oui, monsieur. But you can bring down my Macintosh and travelling cloak and a pair of stout shoes. We are going to walk around the world? Don't be foolish. We shall be catching a train at Charing Cross in 30 minutes. Now hurry. Yes, sir. As you wish, sir. After all, I have had eight hours of a very quiet life. The packing is complete, monsieur. Not quite. I have to add one vital addition from myself. I hope you will take good care of this bag. Naturally, sir. Because there are now £20,000 in it. I would guard it in my life. I hope you won't need to be that extravagant. Moi non plus. Uh, shall I also carry the novel Monsieur has selected for the journey? I see it is a nice long one. I have no patience with novels. This is Bradshaw's Continental Railway Steam Transit and General Guide. I shall carry it myself uh, for the moment. Now, let us lock up the house and find a cab. Thank you, driver. Sirs, sirs, spare a shilling for my baby, sir. Take this, my good woman. I'm glad to have met you. Thank you, sir. Oh, God bless you, sir. Monsieur, that poor woman... You gave her several guineas. Twenty, to be exact, which I won at cards tonight. Though it is none of your business. No, sir, not at all. 
Go and purchase two first-class tickets to Paris. For Paris? Very good, monsieur. Fog! We had to come and see you all. Cordial, Arbiter Flanagan. You must also examine my passport when I return to make sure I made the full journey. That would be quite unnecessary. We will take your word as a gentleman. Don't forget when you're due in London again. A Saturday, the 21st of December, 1872, at quarter to 9 p.m. I see my servant has swiftly purchased our tickets. Uh, farewell. Goodbye, Goodbye Fog. Fog. Safety is not necessary, Riz. I don't feel you have to hurry home. <gasps> what on earth is it, man? Forgive me, sir. In the rush? Yes? I forgot to turn off the gas fire in my room. In that case, my lad, it will burn for 80 days. At your expense. Oh, no! My fellow detectives are spreading themselves across the globe, Your Worship, but it's most likely the thief will pass through, sirs. Don't call me Your Worship. I'm the British Consul, not a High Court judge. Now tell me, Sergeant Fix, why should a bank robber prefer to head this way? <laughs> He's not any old bank robber, Your Consulship. This man has dared to steal £55,000 from the Bank of England. This is new, this is modern, and what is more modern for a man on the move than to travel east through the nearly brand new Suez Canal? Here's the description I've been sent from London. Should such a person avail himself of your consularity, I'd be most grateful if you would uh, tip me the wink without pulling the wind up the cove. <coughs> I'll do my best. But this description is hardly what I would call helpful, Sergeant. A gentleman of perhaps 40 years, regular features, tall with slim figure, light-coloured hair and whiskers. This could be anyone. Not just anyone. For instance, it excludes a man who is short and dark with his eyes too close together. And it excludes all women. Granted. But isn't this the description of an honest man? One likes to think... One looks pretty honest oneself. Remarkably honest, Your Honour, and I hereby declare that you are honest. Of course I am. But how do you know? Detective's instinct. Simple as that, eh? Simple but deep. That's why I request your honest assistance. When an eastbound ship ties up and the English passengers report to your consulate, may I hide at the rear of your office? Then if you take your time with the respectable-looking gents, I shall secretly look them over, wielding my instinct. Very well, Sergeant. There's a steamer docking right now which is on its way to Bombay. We'd best withdraw to the consulate straight away if you're to put your instinct to the test. I could hardly believe it. Fog setting off like that. The reform seems on without him. Generally quieter man I've never known. How mm. he would hate the fuss. Every newspaper seems to have cottoned onto the story, though only the Telegraph thinks he'll make it back in time. I wonder who broke it. Oh, not I. Our friend Andrew Stewart was jolly pleased with himself for kicking off the wager. 
One insolent rag claimed we took advantage of Fogg's obvious lunacy. Even the Chronicle is hedging, and they published the original Poppycock schedule. Where is Stuart now? At the Stock Exchange. It's most bizarre, Lord Albemarle. The man was never to be seen in this place, and yet all of a sudden the Stock Exchange is dealing in Phileas Fogg bonds. Aaron Sonbeard, damn it. Chaps, one of the adventuring breed. We don't have time to fritter away here. But until the other day, Fogg never travelled anywhere. Except between his Savile Row house and the Reform Club. Not as far as anyone knows. Well, he's gone, and that's the fact. And if I still could stir a stump, I'd have offered to go with him. Instead, I'm intending to invest 5,000 on his timely return. My lord, that's more than I originally bet to the contrary. I dare say, young Stuart, but the difference is I'm going to win. Uh, if it's feasible to trot around the globe in 80 days, then an Englishman will be the first to do it. Now, push me off here through that yelping mass of mankind. Make way for Lord Albemarle, if you please. Stand back, unless you want your toes crushed. I'm in a hurry to invest in Fogg. <laughs> Not to damn the music. You are. Fogg's have plummeted, your lordship. Sir? A report's come out from the Geographical Society saying he doesn't stand a chance. What? Well, apart from mechanical failures, the terrible weather will stop him. What rubbish? No, the China Sea's notorious for it. Save your money, my lord. Since when had an Englishman been put off by a drop of rain? The Journal of Jean Passepartout. After our sudden departure from London, Monsieur Fogg and I arrived in Paris the following morning. Ah, Paris. Suddenly I was in a mood of warm reminiscence. Since I knew the city so well, I said to my master, How wonderful to be in Paris again. I had forgotten how much I missed it. It is 7.20 a.m. Oui, monsieur, or 7.16 a.m. And I know of a charming café near here. If you would care for an early breakfast, the fresh croissants are delicious beyond belief. In my imagination, I can already smell the coffee. We shall breakfast on the train to Turin, which leaves at 8.40. And Passepartout. Sir? Kindly correct your eccentric timepiece. Are we only to stop in Paris? For one hour and ten minutes and he sent me to purchase tickets for the next stage of our journey. When we arrived in Turin, I had high hopes that my master's mood would be different. I visited Turin once with a travelling circus. I'm sure you did. It is 6.35 a.m. Or? No, it is not 6.31. Even so, monsieur, I know of a particularly fine restaurant where the market folk eat before setting up their stalls. We shall breakfast on the train at Brindisi, which leaves at 7.20. But that is even less time to stretch our legs than in Paris. You will have many an hour to stretch your legs on the boat to Suez. Suez? Did Monsieur know that Verdi wrote his wonderful opera Aida to celebrate the opening of the Suez Canal? No. And I don't think he cared one way or the other. My master puzzles me. This lack of enthusiasm for anything in the world except the exact keeping of time on our journey. We are now on the steamer SS Mongolia, which stops in Egypt before going on to India. My master says I must shop for clothes in Suez. So, we must be staying there longer than an hour. I expect the Mongolia to prove more fruitful than the previous two ships. 
You must feel disappointed. Certainly not, Mr. Consul. The thief obviously kept himself hidden for a few days in London. Or Paris. Or Turin. Before making a run for the canal. <coughs> Passengers for the Mongolia will be disembarking any minute. I must go back to my office. I shall linger a moment to see if my inspired instinct will strike. Instantly. Excuse me, sir. I am looking for the British Consulate. May I scrutinise your passport for a moment? Uh, it isn't mine, it's my master's. Are you an official? Oh, just a helpful fellow traveller. Your master will have to present himself in person at the consulate, which is in that building over there. But Monsieur Fogg is still on board. Rules are rules. It doesn't do to flaunt them when you're away from home, my friend. Then I shall go and fetch him, but he won't be pleased at all. Notebook of Sergeant Fix. Detective. My quarry is in sight. Only the third British ship to dock in my time here, and I have espied a passport. The description of whose bearer exactly matches that of the bank robber. Phileas Fogg, Esquire. Gentleman. Age 40. Regular features. Height, six foot one inch, which is tall. Weight, 11 stone, which denotes a slim figure. Hair, light brown. And a last crucial detail, whiskers, which signifies... Whiskers. I await my chance. You realise that without a warrant for this man's arrest, nothing can be done? <laughs> Can't you refuse to stamp his passport? In spite of what you told a servant, it isn't obligatory. You may even have frightened him off. No, I see them coming. <laughs> My sixth sense tells me this is the man. I shall hide behind this convenient screen. My name is Phileas Fogg, and this is my passport. Thank you, Mr Fogg. And you are travelling on? To Bombay. Oh, then official documentation is unnecessary. Even so, I wish to prove by your visa that I passed through Suez. Oh, very well, sir. Good day. Well, you must agree, Mr Consul. The man fitted the robber's description in every detail. But the description was so vague. I shall follow the servant. He's French, a talkative race. He'll give the game away for sure. Then I shall send for a warrant. What is the latest from the stock exchange? Mm. How are the Phileas Fogg bonds doing today? Almost sunk without trace. <laughs> I think only one man is left in England who believes Fogg can do it. Lord Albemarle. <laughs> the same. An amiable old buffoon. Ah, I've done my best to get him to sell while there's a chance of halving his losses. Anderton! Stuart! <laughs> most devastating thing! Oh, now calm yourself, Ralph. It can't be worse than your infamous robbery. Well, that's the point. The bank's directors have been visited by the commissioner of police himself. Today he received a telegraphic dispatch from Suez. The man's been caught? Not caught, but identified. The message read, I found the bank robber Phileas Fogg. Oy. Send arrest warrant to Bombay without delay. Signed, Detective Sergeant Fix. Good grief. Good grief. So, unless this Fix makes his arrest... We shall never see Fogg again.
Travelling around the world in 80 days were Leslie Phillips as Phileas Fogg, Eva Bear as Passepartout, and Jim Broadbent as Sergeant Fix. Ronald Fraser was Lord Albemarle, Jonathan Adams, Mr. Ralph, Ronald Herdman, Mr. Flanagan, John Church, Mr. Stewart, and Terence Edmund, the Consul. Other parts were played by Mark Straker, Nicholas Murchie, and Joanna Myers. The music was composed and performed by Wilfredo Acosta, and the director was Janet Whittaker. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.